the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the Bible with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today as we continue our study in the book of 2 Samuel, just when it looks like David might get away with it, in walks a prophet of God to tell him a story. We'll pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 1. The title of the message is David's Fall, the Expose. 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. The whole theme of 2 Samuel is uh, heart after God, and we are certainly not in a, a part of David's life where his heart is after the Lord. David's cover up for his affair with Bathsheba through murdering Uriah and marrying her so that it seems like the the child is legit. It seems to have worked for David and Bathsheba. The, The child is legitimized by their marriage and all seems like it's smooth sailing ahead. With one exception, the last verse in chapter 11 tells us that what David had done, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What David will soon find out is that it doesn't matter how successful a cover-up for sin seems to be. A person can't progress in their relationship with the Lord when they're in that place. And so, because the Lord loves David and wants him to grow and continue to get close to him, the Lord exposes David's sin. So, chapter 12, verse 1, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nursed up, and it grew together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat, drank of his own cup, lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was come unto him, but he took the poor man's lamb. And he dressed it for the man that was come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, thou art the man. Well, we see this whole confrontation starts when God sends Nathan to confront David. Nathan, the last time we saw David's advisor, this prophet Nathan, he was giving David God's beautiful promise that the Messiah would be born through his descendants, through his bloodline. It's interesting because this 
meeting between Nathan and David here will end up bringing God's discipline on David, and it will affect the child born from this wicked deed. And so it is an interesting correlation in how Nathan deals with David. It does, however, bring up the question of why did God wait so long to deal with a lying, murdering adulterer? Why not deal with it right away? Why not bring it out into the open right away? Again, when we last saw Nathan the prophet with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, God promised David he wouldn't reject David's descendants when they sinned or if they sinned. He said, if he sins, I'll, I'll chasten him with stripes, but I won't take my hand from him. I won't take my, my favor from him like I did from Saul. And so if this promise was true for David's offspring, then it, it must apply to David too. And, you know, the beautiful truth, of course, is that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what does God do? He gives us space to repent. And in that space to repent, the hope is this. We look at 1 Corinthians 11, like one of the reasons that we celebrate the Lord's Supper so regularly, we do it once a month. And the reason we do that is because it is a time for examination, examination of self. In 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one, in the text where Paul's teaching the Corinthians about how to celebrate the Lord's Supper, he says, let a man examine himself during his time. But in verse 31, he explains, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, if it gets to that point is what he's saying, we are chastened of the Lord so that we should not be condemned with the world. So this is how God deals with us as his kids, right? He tells David, if your son sins, I'll deal with him like a son of mine. I'll treat him like my son. I'll discipline him. And so this is how God deals with us. He gives us space to repent. He gives us opportunity to judge ourselves, right? To examine ourselves, to see what's going on in our hearts and go, that is off. I need to repent. I need to turn around. But and if we don't do that, then the Lord does judge us. He disciplines us, right? So that we don't get condemned with the world. So that we stay on track. And so during this whole year, while David's thinking, all right, we, we survived, we got through this. Everything's gonna be fine. God's been giving him this opportunity to repent and of course he doesn't. And so God sends Nathan. We looked at David's struggles during this year of covering his sin when we looked at Psalm 32 and Psalm 38. When we read Psalm 51 verses eight through 12, this David's song he writes, or it's a prayer after Nathan confronts him and after he repents. But in Psalm 51, verses 8 through 12, David lists everything that he'd lost during this year. In Psalm 51, 8, this is part of David's plea to God after he repents. Psalm 51, 8, he says, make me to hear joy and gladness. That's because joy and gladness had been gone. He says that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Anybody here ever broken a bone? Yeah, that's not fun. The idea is God is not just, he doesn't have one broken bone. God's been breaking a bunch of bones. David hadn't been judging himself and God's been breaking bones, trying to get his attention, trying to deal with him, trying to bring him to this place of repentance. And so he says, Lord, I don't have any joy. I don't have any gladness. It's been one of the worst years of my life. Even though it seems like he got away with everything. So he prays, make me hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Why? Because they've been, they've been right before David the whole time. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God. His heart hadn't been clean. Renew a right spirit in me, because his heart hadn't been in the right place. And cast me not away from your presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. The Lord had felt very far from David. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with thy generous spirit. David had been missing out on the goodness of God. He'd been missing out on the joy of his salvation. David's explaining everything that was lost during this time that he had hardened his heart to God's conviction. And yet, because David still did not judge himself, God eventually sends Nathan to expose the sin. Now, Nathan, as we read already, he doesn't just come out and go, David, you had an affair and you covered it up with murder and blah, 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 blah. Nathan, the prophet, poses a situation to the king as if he needs the king's judgment. And so it says that he comes to David and he says, hey, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up. And it grew together with him and with his children. It was part of the family. It did eat out of his own, of his own food, drank of his own cup. It lay in his bosom, in his lap. So this is a, you know, we talk about the dogs that think they're lap dogs. This is a lap sheep. This is a little sheep that, and hey, we keep dogs, cats, and other kind of animals as pets today. Sheep were actually common pets back then. And so just as you may know people or maybe even be someone who considers a pet as a family member, that was the case for this poor family. This sheep was not a sheep that they had bought to eat or to use to make money. This kind of lamb had no intention to ever be used for a meal. It was the only special thing, in fact, that this man had purchased, and it was dear to him. Verse 4, And there came a traveler unto the rich man, And he spared to take of his own flock and of his own herd. He kept himself back. He could have taken from his own flock, but he kept himself back from taking one of his own flock, one from his own herd, to dress, to make a meal for this wayfaring man that was come unto him. But he took the lamb of the poor man. Right? I can't read that without hearing that Paul Grape sing it as he's confronting King George and the duckies. He took the lamb of the poor man. He took the poor man's lamb, and he made a meal from it for the man that was come unto him. It's interesting, rabbis, for 2,000 years, they still do it today, they use the words that are used here for the traveler to describe David's lust. For example, lust starts as something passing by, then it becomes a guest, and then it becomes a permanent resident. I don't know if that's what Nathan is hinting at, but that truth is echoed in James chapter 1 when it says, God tempts no man, but every man is drawn away by his own lust, right? And when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and when sin is conceived, it brings forth death. Things start to die. And so, The way to keep lust from becoming a permanent resident in your life is to run the other direction when it's passing by. It's the only way. If you're going to entertain or cook a meal for it, then good luck getting rid of it. 
Now, this story that Nathan is relaying to David, who David doesn't know it's a story at this point in time, it's horribly sad. It's a horribly wrong situation. You know, it, it, why would you do something? Why would anyone do something like that? You got plenty. Why would you take this one man's animal? It's not even a farm animal. It's a pet. It evokes so many angry thoughts regarding the selfishness and the arrogance of, a, of this rich man. It evokes much sympathy for the poor man and his loss. And so it's not surprising to see David's similar reaction, verse 5. It says, and David's anger was greatly kindled against this guy, this rich man. The word here, anger, is a picture word, and it evokes the image of the nostrils flaring and someone's face starting to turn red. And, and the idea of his anger, that nostril flaring, his face turning red, being greatly kindled, it means it began to burn to the highest degree. David would have been spitting fire if he could. David had literally never been this angry in his entire life. His next words prove it. For it says that he says to Nathan, this is his judgment, as the Lord lives, the man that has done this thing shall surely die. As the Lord lives is the, it's the, probably the most solemn oath that an Israeli can make when they say something. It's the surest thing that God is alive. It's the surest thing to every Israeli citizen, the fact that God is real. And that's why it was the strongest oath they could make. Because to go back on that oath would be like saying God is dead. And so he says, as the Lord lives, I'm serious, Nathan. The man that has done this thing shall surely die. Not the best translation. It means he truly is a son of death. I bring this up because stealing or killing your neighbor's animal wasn't a capital crime in Israel, and whatever the motive might have been. So it does bring up the question here of why is David giving this label to this guy? Well, this phrase, calling someone a son of death, it was used to say that a person's deeds were so incredibly evil, it was as if their parentage was death itself. What you've done is so horrible that it's like your, your mom and dad are death. The death itself. I mean, all death does is bring pain and sorrow. And it's like you're their kid. You're just like them. And therefore, when you called someone a son of death in that culture, the idea was there's no way you can reform somebody like that. And so they must be put to death, which is why they translate it, he shall surely die. Now, since this isn't a capital crime, why is David being so harsh? Well, I have seen a tendency that when there is secret sin in my heart or in others' hearts, that when we're far from God, either when there's secret sin in my heart or when I'm far from the Lord, there is a tendency I've found to levy harsh verdicts when we see wrong in others. We do this, I think, because... By justifying our own sin, we become legalistic in our approach to sin. When we deal with our own sin, we start like rationalizing it out, right? Well, if they hadn't done that, I wouldn't have done this. And when we start dealing with our sin in that type of a a judicial way, we start relating to God in a legal way. And when we start relating to God in a legal way, well, we we start falling backwards, backsliding in our walk with the Lord. And so David, surely in in his own conviction, 
that God had been bringing, the broken bones he'd been experiencing, he was surely saying things like this. I'm the king. I get to send soldiers wherever I want to send them. I could have killed Uriah any moment I wanted to. I could have sent him on any mission. doesn't matter that he's my friend. He's my servant just as much as any other man. And the mental gymnastics that are required to push away that guilt from ourselves, it hardens our heart. And so when we see real wrongdoing in others, we are quick to pounce. (laughs) They don't have the justification I do. How dare they do that? And so I get concerned. I get concerned when I see a, a Christian who is ready to label someone else a son of death for the wrongs they've done. I see it, well, our whole culture is ready to label everybody a son of death at some point if you don't agree with me. You don't see it in my way. You're a stupid son of death. You know, you don't deserve to live, right? I mean, they might say something else, but you don't deserve to live. You're too dumb to reform, too wicked to reform. And unfortunately, I see Christians do it a lot too. You see, when we aren't experiencing mercy ourselves, when we aren't relating to God on the basis of mercy ourselves, it is almost impossible to remember Matthew 5, 7, which says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Being merciful. Oh, this is a topic that like gets me in trouble when I start preaching on it. Pastor, mercy, we're gonna, you're all going to become softies and everybody's just going to run over us. Okay. I understand what you're saying, but are we going to do what the Bible says or not? Being merciful is a part of Jesus' kingdom. I didn't make that rule. Jesus did. He said, this is what my kingdom's like. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then when you get a few verses down, it's blessed are the merciful. And therefore, being merciful should be a mark of all of his followers. Because we are aware of just how much mercy we need. And when that is absent, this is why I get concerned. When that is absent, it can often be a sign that someone has pushed the Lord away in justifying their own sin. And so I would say if you have secret sin or you've justified sin, especially sexual sin, listen, you're a danger to more people than just yourself. Because if you are using the excuse of dissatisfaction with your marriage or dissatisfaction with your sexual relationship with your spouse, and that's the reason you're involved in pornography, or that's the reason you lust after other people out there that aren't your spouse, or that's why you flirt with people at work, or that's why you've started getting involved in this affair. If those are the excuses you're using, then you are just as selfish and arrogant as David here. And lives will be destroyed in the wake of you taking what you feel you deserve. Please, please repent before more harm can be done. Now, one would think a sentence of death under the king's oath would be a bad enough punishment for this guy, but David's not thinking clearly, so he's not done talking. He said, and by the way, he's got to pay back this lamb four times. Well, that's great. He's dead, David. How is he supposed to do that? 
Now, David's second sentence is biblical. He shall restore the lamb fourfold. In Exodus 22, verse 1, when God is giving the instructions to the judges of Israel, he says, if a man steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. That's interesting. I mean, David knows his Bible. I love what David Guzik said about David. He said, David's sin and hardness of heart did not diminish his knowledge of the scriptures. David knew the words of the Bible, but he was distant from the author. And oh, that is so, so dangerous. I had a great uncle. He's with the Lord now. But he had a serious alcohol problem. And he lost everything because of this alcohol problem. You know, lost his marriage, lost his family, lost his, he had a very well-paying career. He couldn't hold a job after this. And so he, He came to live with us for a period of time. And I remember, we didn't have much of a relationship with him because he, unfortunately, was passed out a lot. And so, you know, he'd be sneaking booze here and there. And, you know, that was the rule my family set, no drinking, but somehow he'd find it. And, of course, when he wasn't working, he'd be passed out. But every once in a while, he'd be sober and he'd be out and about in the house. And I remember... (sighs) I'm an 80s kid. We watched MTV. I don't even know. Is that even around anymore? Probably not good if it is. And a certain video came on, and it was not modest at all. And, and he was just making all sorts of racy comments. I'm, a, I'm the oldest at that time, and I think I was maybe 11, 12. And he's making all these racy comments in front of us. Not even two hours later, he's talking about all the prophecies in Daniel. Man knew the word. He knew the word. He knew, especially prophecy. He knew it. And he would talk about Bible prophecy all the time. He'd talk about the Bible all the time. This is so dangerous. Never mistake biblical knowledge for spirituality. In 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1, it tells us, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so if, if I got all the knowledge, but I'm not loving the one who gave that knowledge or gave that information... I'm completely missing out. If I'm not loving others around me, if I'm not living out the things that God says, Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. If that's not my life, then that knowledge, all it's going to do is make me proud and carnal. Because it's not the hearer of the word who is blessed, but the person who lives it out. So David, he knows the word. He says, he's going to restore that lamb fourfold. And, and, David says here, why? Because he did this thing, but then he adds this, and because he had no pity. Why is he going to lose his life? Oh, no, it's not just because he stole something. He had no pity. The word there, pity, it means he felt no compassion. He refused to spare himself, to spare this guy from the pain he would cause by this action. You see, what David recognizes is the real crime occurred long before the rich man took the pet lamb. Because the rich man either didn't stop to think or didn't care about how his actions would affect his neighbor. And that is an awful crime of the heart. You see, the rich man is a son of death because when the idea popped into the rich man's head about taking this pet lamb, he should have thought, this is going to break this guy's heart. He should have steeled himself against that thought, thinking this is going to wreck a family. And he did not. Going through with 
pornography or an affair or flirtation or fill in the blank. It requires a refusal to ponder the pain that it will cause a spouse. I see it all the time when these things happen. There's like a blankness on the person's face where they don't even want to think about it. They don't want to think about the betrayal that the other person will feel and experience. They don't want to think about the idea that that other person is going to be dismissed as unworthy or unimportant enough to be faithful to. These actions require a refusal to acknowledge the pain that would cause one's children. It requires the embracing of the lie that everything will be fine even though I cross over this line. It requires a rejection of the truth of 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 and 4, that my body no longer belongs to me once I get married. The Bible says that. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. Husbands, render due affection unto your wives. Do you not know that your body doesn't belong to you? It belongs to your wife? And then it says the exact opposite for the gals. Wives, render due affection unto your husbands, for your body doesn't belong to you anymore. It doesn't belong to me. I gave it to somebody else. Why is David hyper-conscious of this reality, of the real crime? That it happened before the man did anything? He's hyper-conscious because it's exactly what he did. And so Nathan says to him, when David's anger rushes out, he says, To David, you are the man. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.